Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week we learnt about Gregory of Tours, his life, and his writing style. Gregory's experience gave him particular preferences and biases that present themselves clearly in his writing. In particular, we learnt about his use of contrast, what Goffard called irony and romance. This week, we're going to look at a few examples to see whether we can spot Gregory using this contrast to try and teach us some morals. Spoiler alert, he will. Then we're going to move into some of the dramatic power shifts happening in the international scene that shook up the balance of power on the borders of Francia in episode 15, Bishops and Battles. We're going to start off our study of Gregory's moralizing with a natural disaster. It is important to note here that Gregory often talks of disasters. In this early period, many Christians still believed that the end of the world was nigh and looked for signs that the end times were upon them. Periods of crisis, like during the 3rd century or the fall of Rome in the West, often saw a rise in Christian conversions as the dire situation convinced non-believers that Christian prophecies about the end times were real. Unlike some of the other disasters Gregory records, this one we can be sure of due to the existence of a corroborating contemporary source in the Chronicle of Marius. Reading about events we now understand from the perspective of those who don't is always a bit strange. Gregory records a, quote, curious bellowing sound that apparently occurred for 60 days in the mountains of what is now southeastern Switzerland. Then, a whole hillside split open and fell into the river. We can now safely assume these events to be an earthquake or some kind of volcanic activity, but the science to understand these events was still a long way away, so we can forgive Gregory for assuming these kinds of events were acts of God. Unfortunately, the earthquake caused the fallen hillside to block the river Ron, causing a massive flood that devastated the local area and apparently washed away a fortress and even reached the walls of Geneva. Gregory describes the devastation in his usual matter-of-fact manner, even telling us the waters flowed over the walls of Geneva and into the city without much emotion. But, in the midst of this devastation, a lesson must be taught. It can't just be in an unfortunate event. Fear not, dear listener, for Gregory then proceeds to tell us of a group of monks who went to the area of the initial landslide and found a bunch of bronze and iron in the earth. They were apparently so greedy in their lust for these riches that they ignored the mountains bellowing and were buried in another landslide. Now this event was a fairly minor one in the grand history of the period, and even in the story of this particular disaster. But an earthquake and flood need a reason there has to be a lesson in it that Gregory can pull. The irony he uses in the story is clear. The fact that these holy men got caught up in their own greed is a clear moral lesson. Gregory even takes the time to inform us that, quote, their dead bodies were never recovered, end quote. The message is clear. Greed is bad. Gregory uses this cold, simple tone to communicate the stark, and harsh lesson being taught here. So, the irony 
that Goffard was talking about is clear. But what about the romance and the contrast between the two? Well, Gregory doesn't even give us a moment to think about what he told us, diving straight into the story of another disaster. This time, a plague. How fun. And this time the event takes place over time in an urban area, so Gregory has a good opportunity to use key characters to portray his moral messages, rather than having to resort to random stories about monks that are unnamed. He first tells us about a strange series of omens. First, the people of the Alverne region began to see strange lights in the sky, three or four shining lights that moved around the sun. Then the sun and its new friends went dark in an eclipse. Then a comet arrived with a long tail. Then a bird flew into the church at Clermont-Ferrand and blew out all the lamps with its wings. And the same thing happened in another church in the city. Gregory gives us these stories in rapid succession, building tension and communicating clearly to the reader that something is about to happen. But, interestingly, his style of writing also shifts. From the dry, matter-of-fact tone in the previous paragraph, he now gives us metaphor, similes, detailed descriptions, They are not only strange lights, they are, quote, three or four great shining lights. And the peasants exclaim, look, there are now three or four suns in the sky. It was not just an eclipse, it was, quote, so dark and discolored that you would have said it was made of sackcloth, end quote. The comet's tail was, quote, like a sword. It wasn't just any bird on any day either, it was a crested lark on a feast day. See how his language becomes more detailed, more poetic. This is the switch to romance that Gregory uses to contrast. That means we're about to hear about someone being very pious. So the plague hits the Alverne region. It hits other regions too, but in the Alverne we have clear characters we are meant to learn from. See the bishop, a man named Caltanus, flees his city in fear running from town to town to avoid the plague. In the meantime, a priest named Cato steps up, refusing to leave the city as the bodies mount. He even continues to give mass, providing hope for the people left in the city. And it must have been terrifying. Gregory records that one Sunday, 300 dead were counted at a single church. There weren't enough coffins, so mass graves were dug and the disease opened horrifying sores on the body, killing in only a couple of days. Cato has appeared earlier in Gregory's narrative, in a less flattering situation. So this story is not only a contrast to the fleeing bishop, it is also a redemption story for Cato, as he dies trying to help the people of his city. The bishop will also die when he returns, though Gregory clearly thinks He somewhat deserved his fate for his cowardice. In this story, we can see how Gregory builds tension and switches to his romantic style to glorify the actions of Cato and communicate to the reader that that is how a holy man should act. His implicit criticism of Bishop Caltanus is meant to provide a contrast. Gregory even notes the bishop's cousin died on the same day at the same hour as if to suggest 
that he was paying for the bishop's actions. Now, if you're a little surprised that Gregory would so openly attack a fellow bishop, you're not alone. When I first read his work, I too was a little shocked at how Gregory treats his fellow bishops, and this is far from the harshest example. Gregory shows absolutely no hesitation in aggressively attacking bishops that he feels failed or lapsed in their duty. But if we dig a little deeper, he usually has some kind of reason for this. So, what is his reason for portraying Caltanus so? Well, this time, it's family loyalty. A few chapters later, we are told the dramatic story of the election of Caltanus's successor in Clermont. Remember, Clermont was where Gregory was born and where he was raised and educated. In fact, it seems likely he was in the city around this time, though he might have returned to his mother in Burgundy to avoid the plague. But he likely would have been present for the election that followed. This election is an interesting one not only because of Gregory's use of contrast yet again, but also for the window it gives us into church politics. Last week I mentioned that Gregory would later gain his seat in Tours with the help of the court of Sigebert, and that the royals were interfering in elections more and more. The church was meant to be independent, but the election in Clermont shows how important Frankish support was becoming. Gregory casts a villain first in his story, a priest named Euphrasius. He was from a senatorial family, and Gregory even portrays him as agreeable and somewhat capable. Unfortunately, it was his ambition that was his downfall. Euphrasius wanted the seat in Clermont, but instead of appealing to the people or displaying his piety, he decided to take a more politically savvy route. He loaned money from the local Jewish population, whose appearance is often a dead giveaway that Gregory thought the following actions were impious. And he began bribing. He apparently focused his efforts on the Franks, but failed in his appeal to Sigebert. When the election rolled around, the clergy instead voted to elect a Vitus bishop, who, if you remember from last week, was Gregory's uncle and who would take charge of his education. Avitus, apparently, did nothing to campaign for the job and was elected due to his own quality. The contrast here is between the active and thus improper conduct of Euphrasius, the cowardly, weak Caltanus, and the passive but pious Avitus. But the story is not over. Euphrasius's efforts seem to have convinced the local count, a man named Firminus. The count was determined to prevent Avitus from being consecrated as bishop, no doubt so he could try and install Euphrasius and have a loyal ally in the city. He appealed to Sigebert, asking him to delay the consecration a week and offering him a bribe of a thousand gold pieces a sum so large it must be an exaggeration on Gregory's part. What exactly Firminus was going to do in that extra week to prevent Avitus' accession is unclear, though the following events probably give us a hint. Gregory tells us that Sigebert refused the offer 
and instead decided to have Avitus consecrated in his presence in the city of Metz. Gregory paints this as enthusiasm on Sigebert's part, and a great honour, but it technically broke canon law. To me, it looks an awful lot like removing Avitus from a dangerous situation in Clermont and consecrating him away from Ferminus's influence. Of course, Gregory can't say that, as it would tarnish his uncle's success, so instead he just delivers an over-the-top series of praises for the new bishop. That is just a taste of the stories of bishops in this period. For now, let's return to the international arena that we haven't heard about for a while, because some things have been happening. The ascension of Justinian in 527 to emperor in Constantinople marked a decisive shift in the policies of the Eastern Romans. Justinian was an ambitious man, and dreamed of reuniting all Roman lands under his rule. The political balance that had persisted for about 50 years at that point was built around clear spheres of control. After the death of Theodoric the Great, each of the successor kingdoms had had their own clear areas of control with very little overlap. While the Franks had Gaul, the Visigoths had Spain, the Vandals controlled North Africa, and the Ostrogoths controlled Italy. Justinian, however, was about to toss a grenade into that delicate balance. A grenade called Belisarius. Belisarius is one of the great generals of history, right up there with Alexander, Julius Caesar, and Napoleon. The Eastern Roman state was rich and powerful, but it was mostly occupied with the energetic Sassanid Persians on its eastern border, and would soon be with the Slavic incursions into the Balkans. Justinian wanted to reconquer the lands to the west, but he couldn't spare many men to do so. Enter Belisarius, who moves on the Vandal Kingdom in North Africa, a state that had destroyed the joint attempt of the west and east to reconquer it in the 460s, and he seizes it in a single campaign. After this stunning success, Justinian turned his attention to Italy, the ancestral home of the Romans. This war, however, proved to be much harder. Belisarius was a brilliant commander, defeating Ostrogothic armies far superior to his own, but he was hamstrung by politics, a lack of men and material, and disobedient commanders. In the end, the Goths offered him the throne of Western Rome, but he only used it as an opportunity to trick them and cede all the land to Justinian. This tarnished his reputation, and he was eventually recalled. In his absence, the Goths reasserted themselves, and the war became a decades-long struggle. During this period, the Franks were not idle. Both the Goths and the Romans tried to enlist their support. Theudebert took Justinian's money and invaded northern Italy, but he proved to be an untrustworthy ally. The Frankish campaign turned into a massive opportunity for plunder, and Theudebert might have even tried to annex northern Italy, but disease, stretched supply lines, and the fierce opposition from both Romans and Goths forced him back over the Alps. By the time the war ended in 554, Italy was in Roman hands, but it had been thoroughly devastated, and the Romans were exhausted. 
Justinian's reign is one of the most popular topics in late antiquity, and one of the most controversial. Whether you see his reign as a glorious attempt at reunification, or a naive, destructive loss of precious resources that led to the decline of his empire after his death, he was a significant figure. His seizure of North Africa, Italy, and even part of Spain, threw the politics of the West into chaos, and stretched his empire to the limit. The marriages between the Visigoths and the Frankish kings were likely an attempt by the Visigoths to pacify the hungry new Frankish kings, while they dealt with the Roman presence in their territory. As we know, these marriages had profound consequences for Frankish politics. The campaigns of Justinian had other consequences as well. The Romans' more active role in the West meant less time using traditional means of Roman influence, that being titles and diplomatic pressure. Gregory records that Sigebert sent two Frankish envoys to Constantinople, including the problematic Firminus of Clermont, to sue for peace with the Eastern Romans. They were successful, but we can see this effort as the start of a shift in Frankish attitudes towards the Romans. Where previously men like Clovis had coveted Roman titles and used Roman structures to justify their rule, Frankish power was becoming more settled, and they began to see themselves as equals of the Romans. Rather than looking up to them, later Frankish rulers would make efforts to show their parity with the emperors, eventually leading to myths of Frank succeeding the Romans, Charlemagne's coronation in Rome, and then the Holy Roman Empire. Another major consequence was the rise of the Lombards. The Lombards, sometimes called Longobards, were a Germanic group that had been kicking around in southeastern Germany for a while. They must have been consolidating power because Clothar married his daughter Clothsind off to their king, Alboin. Alboin saw the devastated Italy and the exhausted Romans as easy pickings, and he invaded in 568. This began a long struggle between the Lombards, who came to dominate the northern parts of Italy and the interior, and the Romans, who desperately clung to the south and the coastal areas. For the Franks, this conflict also caused several problems for the sons of Clothar, but luckily, a man would appear in their darkest hour to save them. With their momentum, the Lombards, apparently unconcerned by their old queen being a Frank, invaded Gaul. Burgundy was the closest area, and its rich lands were prime targets for plunder. Suddenly, the Franks weren't the new scary force on the scene. Guntram sent out a man named Pionius, Count of Auxerre, to hold the invasion, but he was defeated and the Lombards ravaged Burgundy before retreating across the Alps, laden with booty. The next year they returned, but this time they were defeated by a man named Aeneas Momolus, whose star began to rise. Unfortunately, the ever-restless Saxon smelt blood and descended on Guntram's beleaguered lands. They had apparently joined the Lombards in their invasion of Italy, and again, Guntram was forced to call on Mumulus, who raised an army and managed to defeat them. This time, 
they agreed to an alliance with King Sigebert and returned to Italy, collected their wives and children, and were invited to settle on the northern borders of the realm to form a buffer between Sigebert and the other Saxons. This failed, however, and they soon turned on Sigebert and began pillaging his lands. It was Sigebert's turn to enlist the help of Mamelus, who used positioning and his now fearsome reputation to force them to surrender without a fight and return to their lands in the north. However, no sooner had the Saxons left than another invasion of Lombards burst over the Alps. This time, they divided themselves between three leaders named Amo, Zaban, and Rodan. Amo invaded the area around Avignon, threatening lands Mamelus had been given for his service, while Zaban and Rodan moved to Valence and Grenoble respectively. Amo then moved to Arles, threatening the heartland of Burgundy, and also campaigned around Marseille. The success of these men showed both a new determination amongst the Lombards to annex territory, rather than simply raiding and plundering, and the level of exhaustion the Frankish kings felt by this time. Remember, the civil wars were also still ongoing, and Sigebert had just had to use Mamelus again to seize Tour and Poitiers back after the death of Charibert, as Chilperic had tried to seize them for himself. So, once again, the kings turned to Mamelus. He moved first against Rodan, who was besieging Grenoble. He defeated the Lombards' forces and forced them up into the mountains. Rodan then moved around and joined with Zaban, who was besieging Valence, and told him about his defeat. Together, they decided to break off the siege and plundered the area around the city before returning to Zaban's base in a town called Embrun. There, Mamelus chased them and annihilated their forces in yet another battle, forcing them to flee over the Alps and back to Italy. Hearing of these defeats, Amo decided to abandon his ambitions and gathered up his loot to return to Italy. He had waited too long, however, and the snows were beginning to block the passes over the Alps. Unwilling to stay and face the fearsome Mamelus, Amo abandoned his loot and abandoned his men, taking only a small escort and forcing his way through the passes before he was stuck in Gaul. That is the end of Mamelus's story for this week, but he is not gone from our narrative. Now I know this episode has been a lot of information, but I want to make it clear just how much is going on in this period. When I said I wanted to slow the pace of the podcast down for a while, it was because of this issue, the sheer amount of events that are occurring. The divisive local politics, the internal instability with the feuding kings, and the external threats all add up to a mess of overlapping and contrasting stories that we have to pick through one by one in order to understand. So we're going to leave it there for this week. The Franks were becoming more settled, and these campaigns taught them that they weren't necessarily the biggest, scariest guys on the block anymore. Without the surprising emergence of the talented Mamelus, they might have lost large swaths of their kingdom to the ambitious Lombards, and the Saxons were becoming more and more bold in their defiance of the Frankish kings.
As so often happens, Justinian's grand plans had resulted in chaos for those who succeeded him, and even more bloodshed. None of these stories are over, and we'll get into them more next week, when we'll see how local politics contributed to the internal divisions in the kingdom, which in turn contributed to the external threats, which distracted the kings from the local politics and so on and so forth. This is why the period is often called the Merovingian Anarchy. See you then.